For December 22nd, 2014, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 338, The Hobbit, Under Circumstances of Extreme Metalitude. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matt Rather. We're talking about The Hobbit this week. It's so exciting, and we're going to talk about Colbert a little bit with our panel that includes Pete Fenzel from Boston. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. I'm in a metal mood today. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Mark Lee from New York. Hello, nation. Former The Remnants. The, the hollow shell that was the Colbert Nation. We are here to talk to you because you have no leader anymore and you're going to listen to us now. Damn it. Because Stephen yeah. Colbert is no more. Absolutely. Vanquished. Uh, because apparently we are right-wing ideologues. Oh, too soon. Well, the, um, the question this week, panel, is if we were to go out on a song... If the Overthinking It podcast were to end right now... God, I'm setting this up horribly. I'm going to come in again, guys. Your question this week, panel, is this. We all know that uh, Colbert ended his show with a giant celebrity-infused sing-along of the song, We'll meet again, don't know how, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Uh, And everyone, and it was, I mean, it was incredible because, like, Mandy Patinkin had his arm around Tom Brokaw or something, right? And, like, uh, Mandy Patinkin knew all the words. Not everyone knew all the words. There were Muppets on the stage singing uh, alongside Colbert. Jon Stewart was standing next to Stephen Colbert. It was this uh, sort of studio-filling celebrity sing-along and this is how he chose to go out uh, to end his his almost 1500 episode run of the Colbert Report. So if we were to end our 300 and change episode of Overthinking It, uh, the Overthinking It podcast, what song should we sing? Uh, what what sing along would you like to participate in uh, together with the Overthinkers and such celebrity guests as we can manage to accumulate um, between now and the end of our show? Uh, what song? are we going to go, to go out on? Pete Fenzel, you're first in the alphabet, so I'm going to drink while you answer. You know, I thought about this question a lot, and I've thought about ways that I'd make it, like, especially funny, and I feel like I gotta go with something that would be kind of sincere and that has a little bit of personal meaning to me. Uh, now, the actual act of it would be funny. It's a song that I've, that I've sung parody lyrics to on this very podcast not that long ago. Those of you who remember a promise that I made uh, some time ago on the podcast. We have an episode about the movie Snowpiercer where I made a very, uh, very uh, swift and underthought promise that there would be three meatloaf references before the episode was done. And, of course, making only two during the actual episode, the end credits featured an elaborate, uh, hastily written parody of the song that I would play at the end of the Overthinking It podcast, uh, the uh, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell, right? And it was about, about a polar bear before the gates of heaven, as appears at the end of the movie <laughs> Snowpiercer. <laughs> I do recommend going back to it and checking it out. Because given the haste with which that parody was written, I think it was pretty dead on in a lot of ways. Um, uh, but uh, but the, the Bat Out of Hell is a special farewell song for me, too, because it also is a song that we played upon the passing of great man and friend of the podcast, over th- former Overthinking a guest writer, T.C. Cheever, who we lost to cancer a couple years ago. 
And I remember when he died, you know, we, we sat in a old bar. We used to hang out with him. And, uh, and we, we stacked our cell phones in a pile in the middle of the table because we asked, we asked the barkeep if they would play Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf. And they said no. And because this is a song he always used to sing karaoke. And so we piled our cell phones in the middle of the table and we played Bad Out of Hell simultaneously <laughs> on like six different cell phones. And there's just something about that song and its relationship with Farewell, but also its relationship with sort of loving the idea of Farewell and hating the idea of farewell and struggling against it, right? And it indicts the place that you're coming from, but it also sort of co-locates this place that you're coming from with this sense of terribleness and torture, but also with this badassitude and awesomeness, right? You know, like, a, it also speaks to ephemerality, right? The idea of, like, a bat out of hell, I'll be gone when the morning comes. You know, what it's really describing is a one-night stand, right? The idea that, like, I'll be gone when you wake up because we had this brief tryst. And you don't really think that it's hell that you've been in. Right, but the but the idea of riding the motorcycle and the idea of hell being charged with this sexual energy, but then hell also being the state of not being able to continue the thing that you're doing. Right, like you're leaving a place where the torment is that you know you're going to have to leave it. You know, like the knowledge of having to leave is what makes it hell, and being the bat out of hell, you know, creates the hell and the bat. You know, while you're doing it, it's not so much an it's not an escape so much as a as a it's not an escape from so much as a realization of the act of the escaping as the escape itself. It's very Dantean. You know, the act becomes the punishment becomes the the agency. Um, and of course, like Colbert, it leaves open the door for a return with its glorious resolution of, you know, like a sinner before the gates of heaven, you know, like, like, a, like a polar bear outside of the blown off door of the train. Uh, you know, at the end, I'll be coming on back to you. And, and so it speaks to both kind of undermining and refuting the very thing it's saying, but also kind of romanticizing the opposite of and the reality of the thing that you're doing. I love, I love lyrical Ouroboroses that eat themselves. And Meatloaf, as food and as eater, eats himself as well as anyone. So, uh, <laughs> so on that note, I would say that I would, get the bat, I would do bad out of hell with Meatloaf. Um, and Pitbull would be there. I'm just going to sit there. <laughs> He'd be like, Mr. Worldwide in the 305, Miami. It'd just be like, he be naming places. You know what he would do? He would do a litany of the peoples of the earth, which Pitbull is so great at doing in all his songs, where he would be like, he would be like, you know, Emil from Poland, Belarus, right? He'd be like name-checking, like, you know, man down in Brazil. He'd be like name-checking all the overthinkers from all over the world in like a very specific order that only he knew uh, as, as we departed and, and rode our motorcycle outward uh, into the... You know, that's not Pitbull's only, uh, only commonality with Maya Angelou, but it might be his most uh, <laughs> pronounced... The, the litany of the peoples of the world, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. All great poets understand that classification is a great substitute for knowledge. So there you go. All right. Well, hey, let's uh, read a Homeric list of ships while Mark Lee answers the question. Mark, what song are we going to go out on? I'm going to go with the song Santa Fe from the movie slash musical Newsies which is near and dear to uh, many overthinkers' hearts here. But um, I don't have a great tie-in to uh, the Colbert Report um, other than to say that it's a song that we love, much like presumably Stephen Colbert loves the song We'll Meet Again, Some Sunny Day. But um, this is a song particularly notable to overthinking it for two reasons. One is that uh, it uh, is the intersection of the Venn diagram of Christian Bale and Harvey Fierstein. Right? You guys remember what's going on here with this? Sure. Okay, yeah. so right in the movie, in the movie version of it, which is the original uh, Disney thing from back in the 90s, a young Christian Bale 
weakly sings his way through the original movie version of Newsies in the title role of Jack, or in the in the in the in the uh, main role of Jack in that movie. Um, and it's touching. It's kind of awkward, and it's just kind of amazing that uh, that little boy would go on to become Batman with the, with the harsh voice. Going from uh, so that's what they call a family, mother, daughter, father, son, with that weird sort of uh, New Yorky slash English action thing going on, and then Harvey Fierstein comes into that picture because he—that's where along. he learned it. That's where he learned how to talk that oh. way. No, if, if only that were true, right? <laughs> yeah, because well, <laughs> well, so Harvey Fierstein sometime in the uh, in the in the uh, late two thousands, I think, early early twenty tens, um, comes in and becomes the producer for the stage show of Newsies the musical um which actually uh, premiered in New Jersey Pete Fenzel your home state um because uh, they weren't sure like how far it would go they didn't think it was actually going to come to Broadway proper um so they brought it back in uh, in an off off Broadway kind of thing and then it eventually came to hit the great Broadway and it was a tremendous success um it's a great song it's wistful it it's, it it thinks about um a place that is a fantastical place that is better than where you are right now um uh, but doesn't really exist, and it's an important thing to actually to tie this into uh, our endeavor here is that uh, Jack, the character in Newsies, dreams of of leaving New York City to go to Santa Fe because somehow it's different. It's his it's his escape, but it proves to be an unrealistic escape. And then he finds out that everything he has been looking for was right in front of him all along at home where he actually is so um that i would like to think is how i'd like to end overthinking a podcast i'm looking forward to some uh future endeavors but recognizing that really where you want to be is right here with the people we love and care about so deeply you guys you guys are so maudlin you know uh, we are, though. You know we're sentimentalists. <laughs> I mean, okay. I mean, I thought about ending it with uh, with uh, what uh, that skeet 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 song, you know, <laughs> because that's how we end our karaoke sessions. Yes, usually yes. the skeet, um, skeet 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 song. You forgot what it was called. Oh man, <laughs> it's like escape the pina colada song. Get low, the skeet skeet skeet. Song. Get low by Little John and. Uh, the East Side Boys. Uh, By the way, shout out to the Paper Mill Playhouse, which premiered Newsies uh, back in the day, which uh, I, I once saw Charlotte Ray from The Facts of Life uh, perform in Pippin there, with, uh, which was with Jack Noseworthy yeah. from Dead at 21 in the Bon Jovi video Always. Uh, that was sweet. And which also features heavily, and or meaningfully, if not heavily, in the careers of both Anne Hathaway and William Shatner. That's right. Uh, Anne Hathaway performed there because she grew up in Milburn, and she did some shows there. And William Shatner, in his movie memoirs, disturbed describes the period of his life when he was homeless and living out of his truck and doing shows at places among them being the paper mill playhouse in new jersey so uh so the paper mill playhouse is there for you uh at the beginning and at the end definitely <laughs> uh and in the middle which looks like the end but becomes only the beginning so, so there you are yes yeah, so so the meatloaf <laughs> grows a mouth and <laughs> it eats itself or worse <laughs> like yeah uh eats itself so uh so my, uh, I, you know, I don't know, my answer to this, I, I want uh, it to be a celebration of, um, I want it to be a celebration of life. No, I want it to be a celebration of the things that we talked about on the site and on the podcast now that we're closing, uh, now that we're closing the site. And with these great suggestions, I, I suggest we actually do uh, close down overthinking it. So this will be our last podcast, everybody. What? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, so, uh, you know, the secret is that Peter Jackson, like we're going to split this last podcast into 400 different podcasts. 
<laughs> and we're going to add a lot of material from the Lost Tales, so it's going to be pretty great. <laughs> right. It's yeah. It's funny. Like the uh, the. Um, the, the last scene itis that Return of the King had where where the last you know there was a sense of finality in the last maybe dozen scenes uh, of Return of the King now gets sort of spread out over uh, across a whole movie in The Hobbit but I'm getting ahead of myself I haven't answered the question of the week yet I want to uh I want to celebrate the fact that pop culture is the god-given birthright of everybody's uh uh, you know, of 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 everybody's life, of everybody, no matter where you are, uh, no matter how mean your circumstances, no matter how how great your circumstances, um, no matter uh, what station you are in life, no matter uh, you know the color of your eyes or the color of your hair, the color of your skin, no matter any of the arbitrary divisions that we use to divide ourselves, we are one humanity, and God gave rock and roll. To to you. Oh, nice. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. This oh, means you. You are uh you are an heir to the great tradition of rock and roll, you know? And and uh, rock and roll here as a as a metonymy for all forms of of pop culture, right? Like, you know, I, God gave Game of Thrones to you. <laughs> Gave right, Game and Thrones <laughs> to you. Uh, Gave Game and Thrones to everyone. Did you just call it Game and Thrones? <laughs> <laughs> well, right. God did. God. I mean, I don't know. Maybe God didn't give Game to you, right? But whether you have Game or not, you have Game of Thrones because God did give that to you. But I wanted more properties. Uh, I wanted more properties. Like God gave Game of Thrones to you. Gave house and bones to you, <laughs> you know, and more, uh, you know, uh, and more, more on and on. Um, put it on the TV for everyone. <laughs> right, and it would have a screaming guitar solo from our own Mark Lee, and it would have all kinds of like, you know, it could have a rap break if you wanted. And I, I think uh, drink Pitbull. Speaking yeah. <laughs> Pitbull or any member of the Wu Tang Clan who wanted to come on, claim a box of Mint Milano's, oh, yeah. uh, and you know, be with us and do uh, do a guest verse inside of our cover of rock and roll, and and we would you know do the thing Colbert did, where there would be like a you know a happy globe with you know all the children of the world holding hands and singing "God Gave Rock and Roll to You" yeah. uh, across the you know from horizon to horizon. It would be. Truly a glorious thing. That's that's also, my plan also, for how we're going to go out. I want Henry Kissinger singing "God gave rock and roll to you." <laughs> gave rock and roll to you. Gave rock and roll to you, Mr. President. <laughs> I mean, to, to, to connect all this, you know, let, let's let's take a moment to acknowledge that just as you know, my own choice was, of course, for grief over my lost friend, lost friend of a lot of listeners, wonderful human being. God Gave Rock and Roll to You is also a song that's about the loss of a specific person, except it has the guts. The actual person who is dying is on the song, right? So, you know, Eric Carr, the drummer for Kiss, was was, – this is his last song is God Gave Rock and Roll to You. Um, He was too ill to play the drums when they recorded this song. But he sings – there's like a a soft, ethereal backup vocal that goes, you know, he gave his song to be sung. It's like it like floats through in the sort of counterpoint uh, and the counter melody. And that's Eric Carr. It's the last Kiss song he appears in before he dies, I think, of cancer. 
Um, but yeah, so like that's a song. I mean, it's 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 just issues of scope, right? Like, and I, I want to talk about this with regards to the Hobbit too. Once we get to it, but like just sort of translating something that's really meaningful to one person into a different context where it's very meaningful to a bunch of different people for totally different reasons, right? And it just there's this core uh, that created something special, right, in the relationship between Eric Carr and the other members of Kiss that is universalizable, right? That can be expanded or contracted. Um, there's just some part to it there's some some gem to it right some arkenstone that can be that can be transferred or some you know i guess the term relative to relevant to the hobbit movie would be there's an heirloom to it right so uh but yeah but before we move on to the hobbit we should really talk a little bit more about the end of colbert which was just such a wonderful and influential and beautiful show in its own right uh, i mean i know mark you were particularly insistent about wanting to talk about it this week yeah so just a brief history but so um i actually saw one of the, probably the first dozen episodes of the colbert report in the studio um, I was lucky enough through um, a like a friend of a friend of a friend um, to uh, have you know to, to to be invited to uh, be a part of the audience for the show, and I saw it, and I realized it was something special. I like I, I, my jury was a little bit out there, right? As as probably everyone's was, um, wondering like who could possibly top the genius that is John Stewart at the time. And um, of course, Stephen Colbert went on to do something completely different from John Stewart, and and uh, you could arguably surpass. <coughs> excuse me. Arguably surpassed the, the achievements of John Stewart, um, and so I, I, I have been following the career of Stephen Colbert for a long time, and just been constantly amazed by what he has been able to pull off um, with his art form and with his character. And so, at the end of this nine-year run of his, you know, looking back at all of his accomplishments, I am equal parts um, grateful that we have a media culture that is diverse and sophisticated enough to allow something so bizarre as him to flourish and to exist. And I'm also uh, equal parts sad that, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert has to exist as a response to the nightmarish, dystopic, right-wing propaganda machine that is Fox News, essentially. So I'm trying to reconcile both of those things there. Like, you know, I love that Stephen Colbert was allowed to exist, and I'm saddened that Stephen Colbert had to exist. And I guess we have to, you know, in this, in this crazy postmodern world of ours where, um, you know, North Korea can hack Sony pictures and cause a major motion picture to be released in this crazy mix of world we live in, I guess we have to, uh, you know, accept both of those and contend with them at the same time. That's where I'm, what I'm feeling right now. What about you guys? Gosh, I mean, yeah, I think that, I think that it's, it's tricky because I think that there's a lot of demand across history, across literature, across conversations, that our art really aspire to our better nature, right? That, 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 art, that art should be, that there's this division between art should be kind of better than the world, or else art should, like, reflect the world, mm. right? This, this, this sort of Platonic versus Aristotelian view of the role of art, the idea that art should aspire to higher ideas versus art should reflect, and if anything, and reflect the perfection of nature, right? So nature is perfect, and therefore art should reflect it if it wants to be great, or, you know, thought and the mind are perfect. Perfect. And and I think that um, we have our own versions of these things, this idea that art should aspire to a perfection that we have in mind for how people should be, right, versus also like, well, art should reflect like the brutality of the world that we live in, right? The idea that this video game isn't real enough because I don't get to shoot enough people, right? <laughs> because in, in the real – we talked about this in reference particularly to uh, – uh, to break post Breaking Bad, right? Shane, this was Shana's one of Shana's big ideas for a while that, that we were all talking about was this idea that things become more more true and real and 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 valid if they become more brutal and nasty and awful because the world is brutal and nasty and awful, right? And this is a and what I'm saying is I'm sort of setting up the goalposts that Stephen Colbert kicked the football through. 
right, is on one hand this aspirational idea that we want the world to be better than it is and that we see in our ability to make art a capacity to make things better than ourselves versus also acknowledging that like art is a product of the world that we live in to the extent that it's kind of a creation by physical beings and whatnot. And, and as such, like a transcendental perfection that gets away from all of the flaws uh, may also do a disservice to the role that it would have in our lives. It may not ring as authentic or true for us, right? But at the same time, you know, you can aspire to be better while at the same time also, you know, aspiring to resonate, you know, and and I think that you know satire, you know, is is a, is a is a really cool field. I think that it isn't given enough, it isn't given enough credit. I also think it isn't kind of broadly acknowledged enough uh, in terms of well, in terms of the breadth of what it participates in, right? Like what concept, what things that are out there are to one degree or another satire is is a conversation that is uh, you know often had uncharitably or often had narrowly, and we've talked about that. Of course, it's it's similar to the like our video games art conversation because there's I never I rarely acknowledge uh, I rarely see a pressing need to constrain the the field on this one um but yeah but i think that i think that he found a generative energy where he himself was was putting out a lot of cool stuff he had a great team of people that were putting a lot of cool stuff out for a long time it was fun um and yeah and i mean i don't necessarily bemoan that the world was bad um during the course of the time that stephen colbert was making this thing i mean that's sort of always the case right like um, I don't know. I mean, it's not, it's not like I want to go quite as far uh, as to say that like life is better because the world is bad because otherwise it would be meaningless. I don't really ascribe to that uh, thought, though it's one that's pretty prevalent in philosophy and in, other, in certain kinds of – and it's in Tolkien, right? The, uh, the gift of mortality and, uh, and the men versus the elves and the Eldar and whatnot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, well, I mean – Okay, so let's get down to brass tacks here, right? Fox okay. News. Stephen Colbert <laughs> – <laughs> Stephen Colbert is in oh, many great. ways. Oh, great. Let's a, talk about politics again. What a, I know, what a right? lovely yeah, idea. Because this, this, this can only go to great places, right? Stephen Colbert is in many ways a direct product of Fox News, right? He's a commentary on the likes of Bill O'Reilly yeah. and Glenn Beck. Sure. Right. And so the knee-jerk reaction the thing to say is, oh, you know, like, you know, there used to not be a Fox News, and then there was a Fox News, and Fox News was horrible. And Stephen Colbert came as a brutal satire and reaction to that. Um, I'm not sure. So, like, I it's, think it's. Okay. I think it's easy. To, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Mark. I, I don't mean. I'll stomp you afterwards. Easily, I stepped up as a straw man to be easily knocked down by you guys. By you guys, because I was about to say is that okay? There has always been a Fox News in some way, right? It just so happens that in our current day and age, um, you know, with, with cable and with YouTube and things like that, like you know, we we're able to um, sort of instantly break it down and respond to it and analyze it in ways we perhaps haven't been able to do before. Yeah, I, I'm going to uh, point everyone to a uh, to a post on Overthinking It from 2010 called Patriotic Never Forget T-Shirts with Eagles on Them, colon, a <laughs> historical retrospective. Uh, if you want to, I mean, if you want to wonder, uh, if you wonder whether there's always been a, uh, whether there's always been a Fox News or not, right? Like, I, so, okay, what if, if there was a political program to the Colbert Report, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what exactly it is, right? Um, well, it's calling out the hypocrites for being hypocrites and all that for all their many outrages. Yeah, but did, did we not know that? 
right? Did we, did we need to be, is that something that we needed to be reminded of, right? Like is, is the world, did the world need this, this satire? You know, I'm often right. Like I'm, I'm often, uh, I'm often put in mind of something that Pete said uh, many, many years ago about the original Anchorman, uh, and and uh, which is that it's the it's the um, the uh, that Anchorman is a farce masquerading as a satire, right? It has all the it has all the satire clothes on, but it, but it's not really a satire because it's not really sort of aimed at provoking social change, which is one of the you know which is one of the things that that distinguishes satire as a, as an art form, um, you know, from, um, uh, other kinds of mockery, tomfoolery, clowning, uh, things like this. And, and I, you know, sort of the clown, the Stephen Colbert clown character, right. The sort of what he is described as the high status idiot, you know, character that he played, like, did anyone not know, you know, that, that, uh, that those people are idiots, that the blowhards are all the blowhards out there are idiots, right? Like, and is anyone who doesn't know that actually going to be disabused of their delusion by the Colbert rapport, right? Um, I, I, I worry more, more and more in the last seven days for some reason. Uh, I worry about an echo chamber, right? Like, I worry about a self reinforcing. Um, echo chamber that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't take to being challenged well. And I loved Colbert, right? Like I, I think his accomplishments with that show are, are great, but I sort of wonder when we think about it, right? Like, and, and want to kind of lionize the moral victory there somehow, like what exactly does the moral victory consist of that, that we're lionizing? I mean, I have a, I had a different angle on it. Do you want to keep? No, don't answer that? my question. Answer that. Yeah, be like a politi- Be like one of the blowhards and answer the question that you <laughs> that you wish I had asked. You know what I mean? Stick to your talking well, points, people. No, Come no, on. no. I mean, like, what is the moral victory that we're realizing? Okay, I will answer the question. So, okay, so my take on it's a little bit different than both of your guys' takes, although I think it shares a lot of the similarities. One of them is that I think that if if we try to look disinterestedly at People like Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, and their careers, right, and what they were, what they accomplished, right. Um, I, I think one thing that I that I often kind of stress when we have conversations about politics is to separate your feelings about what you think the outcomes of something are versus what the actual outcomes of the thing are, right? Uh, and in this case, I kind of want to go the opposite way, right? Is that like, I think one of the reasons that we were responding really negatively to the right-wing propaganda machine that we're talking about, uh, in particular, our own politics, of course, are a factor, uh, which at this point, you know, we're not really lying about or pretending anything about, right? But the other, the other half is that like, there were a lot of bad things that happened uh, and undesirable things and, and mix-ups and, and wars that maybe didn't need to happen that were very much enabled by the this kind of way of thinking, right? And and so that's kind of that's what makes it bad, right? Is that like causes causes wars, you know, there's undesirable outcomes that happen. Yeah, I would also ask now, like there's a generational aspect to this, right? Like, you know, the two thousands were our decade of disillusionment, right? The generation before us had Vietnam and we have, you know, the Iraq war and um, right, right. you know the government lying to us for eight years. Yeah. 
And I mean, I think that that that, that disillusionment, the sort of post-Abu Ghraib disillusionment is something that characterizes most of the political spectrum right now. Uh, it's, it's, you know, this sort of the anger and the disappointment. I think it's easy to forget just how buoyant people were capable of being in the early 2000s about the situation of war and whatnot. But, but putting aside the outcomes, right? Like, like the, people are so fond of saying, for example, that like a degree in English is useless, right? Like, oh, you know, the humanities is useless. A degree in English is useless. You should, you know, you may be in terms of getting a job right out of college that will remunerate you more than $50,000. You want to go into chemical engineering. But like, I want to point out, like, what exactly is a Bill O'Reilly, a Glenn Beck, you know, like a Karl Rove? They're artists. They're theater, right? They're performers. They're rhetoricians, right? They are sentimental performers who are looking to access an emotional quality of an audience. You know, it's entertainment, to a large extent, right? It's art, it's entertainment, and it is done, you know, in, in the service of very, very specific goals, right? But, like, let's consider what is it that, you know, a Bill O'Reilly or a Glenn Beck does really well, you know? Like, and, and I think that if you look at that and you look at the characters that they've created, which had novelty to them, I think. I think that there are creations there in terms of how they connect with people, how they resonate with people. People who are not us, sure, but people, you know? And, and the ways that people like them, people really care about these guys and watch them all the time, right? Like, you know, like they, they're clearly doing something right for somebody, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and it, it, it might It might not be setting international policy, but I think it's silly to say that they've created nothing. Now, I think that that's one of the big things that Colbert does, is he looks at this whole movement and he pulls out the performative aspects, the artistic aspects, the theatrical aspects of it, and, and chops off the mission. Right. And, and, and performs that character. Right. And, and yes, satirizes that character by poking by poking fun at it, by taking it down a notch. Right. More than poking fun at it, by by revealing its vices and foibles. Right. By sort of very transparently lying and kind of like his open discussion of his own lying is a very kind of old school, you know, kind of Moliere-ish sort of satire. Right. Where it's like, I'm an authority figure and I have no problems lying all the time. Right. Like it's very French, um, you know, which, of course, I'm sure Bill O'Reilly would snicker at uh, and say is true. Um, but yeah, this idea that you're taking you're taking a fictional you're taking like a an extended universe, right? You're taking like a body of fictional characters that have been created, yes, for the purpose of enacting a particular set of political goals, all masterminded by a very specific Nixon advisor. But like you're taking like these you're taking this thing that's become part of the pop culture. These are cultural figures, and you're and you're and you're and you're rejuxtaposing it. And I think in, in a lot of humor is about juxtaposition, right? And about like taking something and investigating it in a different context. And you say like, well, yeah, well, what if Bill O'Reilly did a comedy show about himself and how silly he was, right? Like, what would it be like? What if he interviewed computer animated dragons and did dance numbers and had a cartoon where he was a spaceman? You know, like, what would that be like? Wouldn't that tell us something different about what this character is that he's created? That is a powerful thing in the culture, right? And so in that sense, I think that that's a big part of, of where Colbert kind of like, not necessarily owes a debt, but like where he falls in line with these guys. I don't think it's, John Stewart is much more the like, I don't like these guys, and I think that what they're doing is bad and wrong, and I'm going to make jokes, and I'm going to create humor that kind of, that sort of pokes holes in their narrative and and participates in discourses of power and, and seeks to undermine what they're saying. Like, that's what John Stewart is doing. But Colbert is a theater actor and a musical theater actor, too, you know, just like Christian Bale was back in the day. <laughs> that's a good you know? point. And he's, yeah. and he's saying, like, let's look at the personages. Let's look at the people. You know, and I think that's also why he comes off more compassionately because he care. I think his his performance comes off. Not that I'm insulting John Stewart. I'm not. I think he's, you know, I no, don't know. No, no, like so but. directly directly addressing that. Right. John Stewart, every once in a while, will just like 
drop all of the you know the jokes and the clever rhetoric and things like that and we'll just straight up say go f yourself right yeah. that's something that he will say every once in a while right you will never see that on the colbert report right because they're approaching things from very different angles like you described and that that to me like encapsulates the difference between the two of their shows yeah, 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 totally. It's it's and there's very different shows, but yeah, but I think I think he's yeah he's performing a buffoonish character is what Colbert is doing, right? Yeah. And it's very specific buffoonish character, and it owes a debt to very specific buffoonish characters that perhaps were not uh, framed in a buffoonish manner or employed toward buffoonish ends. Um, <laughs> so yeah, in that sense, in that sense, it's a very very old sort of satire. Like back when it was powerful to be, you know, to have like back when when the the meaning of political power was to like be the father of the family, right? And back when it was like hugely subversive to like suggest that the father of the family was irresponsible. Well, that's like, I that guess level. that's what I'm. I guess that's that's the point. That's the small objection. And and again, like for God's sake, don't email me. But you know, uh, let 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 it never be said that you know Matt Rather does not love Stephen Colbert because I do. Um, and he does, right? Both, both, both the man and the, the internet persona are big fans, but, uh, you know, but I sort of, I, the, the I, I sort of want to ask a question about that, right? Like, because it's no longer, it's no longer the case that, that, um, you know, that sort of patriarchal authority is the, is the root of our political legitimacy. Uh, and so, so no, it's much more institutional authority than patriarchal authority. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and I so right. So I sort of wonder. Um, I wonder if 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 he's not. Yeah, I guess you go to I guess you go to satire with the army you have, right? Rather than well, with the I, army I do you, I do think I do think you are shortchanging the importance and the influence of these pundit characters, uh-huh. right? Like. I, I think I, I mean sure, fair that, enough. Because they don't yeah. they don't really have influence in in my sphere in my you know yeah. in my world that like yeah. it would be easy. It's probably easy for me to overlook or minimize their important their importance in the in the larger culture. Right, right, right. I mean, again, the echo chamber. Right. It's it becomes really hard. You almost get to the point where you're just guessing what people who aren't like you think. Yeah, I, you right. know, I mean, yeah. it's sort of I sort of wonder. What a reliable source for, I mean, because we don't have access to polling, right? Like, I sometimes wonder what a reliable source of, of that sort of information for some for someone like us would be, right? Because I, I would be curious to know, you know, Pete is, uh, uh, Pete, you're fond of pointing out how unpopular Girls is compared with all the ink that's spilled over that particular television yeah. show. And not because uh, not because the TV show is good or bad, just to make the point. That it occupies a position in the culture out of proportion, uh, uh, perhaps out of proportion to its actual rate of consumption, right? I, well, I, would I mean, just, the same could be say, the same could have been said for Breaking Bad too, right? Oh, definitely. I would say I would say not even that it occupies a space in the culture. I would say that it occupies a space in the commentariat, which is not commensurate with its audience. Um, the culture, girls, has a big place in the culture. I think, especially now, especially gosh. You remember that? That la- I mean, I don't even want to go into it, but the last big scandal involving Lena Dunham, like people were coming out of the woodwork everywhere, revealing how much they hate Lena Dunham, right? Um, but those aren't the people writing blog entries about girls, right? Like it's it's like uh, you know, this is a figure that has taken on a meaning in the broad culture, but it's not 
but it, I don't think that the commentariat is necessarily in touch with the broader experience of it because the commentariat uh, has sort of resigned itself to only having a smallish kind of audience because of the decline of networks and the and the growth of echo chamber media distribution and also of unpaid media uh, production, you know, and aggregation and whatnot. So, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, well, like you know, it's. Uh, I, I did love it when that when the premiere of the remake of Dallas was like the most popular show on television, and yeah, and none of the and none of the super smart uh, cultural critics were even talking about. Right. It. Yeah. Yeah. Like, exactly. No, nobody talked about like the Wyatt Earp series on the History Channel, and it's like you know what? Like four times as many people are watching that as are watching you know Breaking Bad. Yeah. It's it's. Uh, I mean, Game of Thrones has finally crossed over to be like actually popular, but for a long time it really wasn't. Um, True Blood, you know, so much more popular than all those shows. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. It was the most popular show on HBO for years. People love that show. Um, but you never see, you know, yeah, the commentary it would sometimes talk about True Blood was very echo chambery. Like, people like us, we wouldn't get involved in conversations about True Blood. I, well, I actually watched uh, True Blood. I, I'm actually a little embarrassed. Oh, you, would. To... you would. You're totally part of the True Blood crew. <laughs> well, I'm a little embarrassed <laughs> to say, actually, how long, right, into yeah. the history of that show I watched it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. I actually, I don't know. I like, uh, I like soapy. I really like good soaps. You know, I think, I think they're hard to, I think they're hard to come by. I think that a lot of the, a lot of the soaps we have really fail <laughs> as soaps, you know, yep. really fail as like lurid, sordid entertainments. And I, uh, you know, I want me some lurid, sordid entertainments. Right. And I have, uh, uh, really, no qualms about about saying that that's what I want. I mean, and, you know, can you say that you really understand pop culture in America if you read like a half dozen pop culture blogs and none of them ever talk about pro wrestling? Right? Like, it's like, can you really say? <laughs> can you really say that you understand? Because you know, that's like that's a large thing. <laughs> you know, like, um, and and it's just, I just, yeah, I just think that the commentariat gets very echo chambery, and we kind of we lose track of of what it, we don't really know. We don't really know what everybody's into. It's that's kind of the irony, right? Is that we know more about everybody than we ever have, and yet we know less about what they're into than we ever have. Um, because there's so many different things to be into. Or rather, we, we sort of acknowledge, I mean, you know, uh, less about what they're into than we ever have, right? Like, because yeah. I, I think the information is probably available, right? Like, never, never have we known more about, uh, I don't know, what, what, what people are watching, right? Like, never have we had more information about, uh, never have we had more big data. Never have we had more metrics, Never have we had more key performance indicators, and uh, uh, but it's it's um, you know I don't know I, there's this there's this kind of reluctance to kind of accept what it reveals, <laughs> right? What yeah. these what these well, data I think there's also, reveal. I think this is also you. This is where we get people like you know Bill O'Reilly and and Glenn Beck. Where it's like, yeah, we have a whole ton of data, we have a whole ton of research on what people want, you know, but you know what they really respond to is the right personality, talking to them at the right time. You know what I mean? At the right volume. So, yeah, at the right volume. At the right volume, yeah. <laughs> which, which may be very loud. And then, you know what, maybe, and, the, and if you take that right screaming eagle and you put it in a CGI uh, intro and you wave the flag a little bit. I don't know. I mean, Colbert, it's, it's, it's a relic at this point, right? It totally is. Because the time that it's satirizing really seems like it has passed, even if the institutions have stuck around in the culture. But I don't know. I just love it. I, I love Col- I'm, I'm saying I love Colbert. I love that Colbert recognizes the awesome things about this horrible, horrible enterprise that is like misleading people into wars of aggression, but recognizes that the theater of it is kind of fun. <laughs> and it sort of like finds a way to kind of redeem it and employ it to 
towards like good ends and compassionate ends. And I think right. Yeah. It's, it, oh. Yeah. It's really right. It's really compelling. And, and yeah, I definitely, I don't want to get car- tarred with the brush of the guy who doesn't love uh, as the guy who doesn't love Colbert. Let, you know, right. Like let, uh, <laughs> you know, let the state censors know, right. Like uh, I, I loves me some Colbert. Um, but I do, I don't know. I, I, I do like to sort of look at, I, I do like to look at our pleasures with a, a slightly jaundiced eye and wonder if right in, in all of, in all of our right thinking, there isn't something that is, uh, that resembles a little bit the thing the thing that we are right thinking enough to repudiate. Speaking of which, The Hobbit. Well, I was I had a good one, Matt. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, speaking of looming jaundiced eyes. Yes, like, yes. <laughs> I was about to go there. I haven't even seen this yeah. movie, and I was like, oh, smog. <laughs> there's so many jaundiced, jaundiced eyes. eyes in the hobbit not only do we get the jaundiced eye of smog in in uh smog in hobbit 3 5a or also known as the hobbit legolas colon being legolas which i don't know if you guys saw this movie but uh this was a legolas heavy movie if you're a big legolas fan and i know some of you are because someone's got to be uh this is the best legolas i i went on record time to was the best barrel movie ever made and like an okay Hobbit movie because <laughs> um, there's so many great barrel uh, businesses. Pee, we lost, it, Pee, Pee, so we lost you. And this we, is a movie that just goes over and above. We lost you for a second, Pete. So, so oh, you're saying sorry. you went on record at the time saying that the first Hobbit movie was the greatest barrel-oriented. The, the second, right, of course. The first With, Hobbit movie was about scones and falling off of high right. things. And the second Hobbit movie was about barrels and riding on barrels and floating in barrels. Yes. Right? Uh, and then the third Hobbit movie... I mean, my take on it, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a huge Legolas movie. Uh, it, it bears little resemblance to the original source material. Um, but the really, this was the gut reaction to it, and I hope you don't know if, mind if I just throw that out there right away, because it just hit me so hard, is that, like, like there's, a, there's like, the, through, like, Led Zeppelin and through guys like Ronnie James Dio and Black Sabbath and uh, Iron Maiden, there's this relationship between fantasy literature, right, and particularly Tolkien with, like, hard rock and heavy metal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, Misty Mountain Hop, right? Led Zeppelin. Misty, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and this was the most metal uh, Lord of the Rings. To- this is the most metal Tolkien movie I've ever seen. There is not a scene in this movie except maybe at the end <laughs> – Maybe at the end, when Bilbo is uh, there, Bilbo finds people. Uh, Sackville Baggins is auctioning off his belongings. But there is not a scene in this movie that I would not either a uh, enjoy seeing airbrushed on the side of a van, or b <laughs> that I could not like describe it using like heavy metal voice. Right? Like, in fact, I wanted to describe every scene in this movie using like heavy metal screechy voice, which is why I said at the beginning of the thing, like Matt, you saw this movie, right? Oh yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember the scene when when the wizard and the elf king came to the dark castle where the demons and the waste were coming, and the lady Galadriel was reaching out her hand and banished them all in the darkness with the light and the green face, right? And candles <laughs> dying on the ground. Do you remember the scene where Thorin was in the sea of gold and the gold was all around him and he was drowning at the gold of the dragon with the dragon curse and the dragon bait all around him for it all consumed by his greed. Right. right you, like, and or like uh, and spoiler alert by the way like do you remember the scene where the demon was floating under the ice and the demon stabbed up through the ice through the foot of Thorin Arkenshield and yet he slayed the demon with a mighty blow sacrificing his life. <laughs> you take the 
spear of the orc in your chest and you look down at the orc and you stab the orc back. <laughs> like, <laughs> and the eagles are flying ahead with your dying breath. You see the eagles and they speak to you, but you still submit your soul to the darkness. <laughs> right? Like, this was... <laughs> there is... Mark, you didn't see this movie, oh, but there is like an ogre in... The, so the, the orcs have these crazy siege engine that are like these big hulking monsters. They're like giant ogre troll things. And they have like various apparatus attached to them. Like a bunch of them have catapults on their backs and just throw the stones from the catapult. There is at one point a troll of some kind that has been that is carrying multiple people, I think, and is so badly damaged through its use in battle that all four li- all four of its limbs are like badass wooden and steel prostheses, like pegs, like giant pegs and axes. Right? It's just like hobbling around <laughs> on two giant wooden legs, carrying like two giant metal hands. Right? Like 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 there are like multiple characters with swords for arms in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> like it's never acknowledged and they're not like they're not like robots it's like oh my arm got chopped off i'm gonna put a sword there right like it's just it's amazing right? it's, it's all, and it, i think that it actually affects the movie on a pretty deep level uh well it's also there's also like a forbidden love story in the movie where it's like baby gotta go to the mountaintop don't wait for me baby you know like it's like there's a very heavy metal uh love plot right where it's like the dwarf and the elf they can't get they can't be together and and like she goes to save him and she fails and he tries to save her and he fails and then he gets stabbed through the chest and they're crying and she tries to kill herself by throwing herself off of the mountain grabbing the orc and then they land on and then legolas does like 800 billion things and it's amazing and it's just like you know what if there were anybody else doing this if anybody else in the history of movies were doing the things that i'm watching right now i would say this is ridiculous and i would be tempted to get up and walk out of this theater but it is to legolas's credit that if it's legolas it's okay my girlfriend turned to me and said, uh, what fitness program do you think he uses for his workout? And I said, oh, he does Lego Lost Fit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's just amazing. I mean, and it goes through the whole movie, right? The first half an hour or like 20 minutes of the movie is like, dragon fight! Right? It's like, and the city of the city of the lake town is burning with the breath of the dragon and the man runs along the rooftops and gets in the... And it's just, it's like... It's a ridiculous, like, Smaug rises up from the town and, like, spreads his wings across the fenders of your 1985 GMC Custom, <laughs> right? And his lungs fill with fire and glow, and then he, like, bursts down, right? And just, like, reams the town with gouts of flame, right? And then there's one man in the tower who's, like, and they've all got long hair, too. They all look like... <laughs> and the man in the tower said No! <laughs> That's right. He's like, I've got ten arrows, and I'm facing down this dragon. And, of course, the dragon stops and, like, has a conversation with him about his inadequacies, right? Just like in a heavy metal song. Or it's like, you know, who you think you are that you could face me, the monster, right? And and um, and, he, and his son brings in the black arrow, which he shoots in the dragon's heart. Um, <laughs> it is taking basically the denouement of The Hobbit and turning it into an Iron Maiden album, right? It's just like, it's just there's so much fighting, and there's so much fighting that's not in the books but that's okay i particularly love i mean i mean there was like you guys remember 
Uh, and I've got to calm down a little bit so people can understand what I'm saying. But you guys remember when you first saw Star Wars Episode Two: The Clone Wars, and the first time that Yoda busted out a lightsaber and did his lightsaber fighting? Boy, it's easy to make fun of. At this point, the whole thing looks silly. Uh, but I remember being like really sincerely impressed and jazzed at seeing something like that on screen because it was like super cool and awesome and surprising. There is a fight scene in this movie where you know, 95, however old he is, year old Christopher Lee. And I'm sure it's like stunt doubles and CGI, but it's like Gandalf is in the, is in this like dark fortress with the necromancer, right? Where he's been in a hanging in a steel cage, like mad Mardigan and Willow, except he's been doing it for months or whatever. And he's like starving or something. And the lady Galadriel shows up and like, like destroys the one orc who's there with like a giant, like wave of Aurora lightning. Uh, that's terrible and beautiful. Right. And then the, the ring wraiths show up. Like the nine Nazgul, but in their spirit forms as the kings of men, they show up, right? And Galadriel is like facing off against the spirits of the slowly reincarnating Nazgul, and and Christopher Lee and Hugo Weaving both show up, right? So it's Christopher Lee and Hugo Weaving and Kate Blanchett all in this movie with Gandalf with Siri McKellen like lying on the ground, and there is this this righteous fight scene where Christopher Lee is like spinning and blasting and he's putting up like laser shields and his white hair is flowing and streaming and it's all darkness and clouds and lightning and it's like the the ghost demon swords are all around them right like elrond is golden and mighty and powerful right and like all of the strength and you know virtue of a thousand year old warrior fighting yet another battle against the undead and Kate blanchett does this transformation it goes to like ghost rider spirit of vengeance town where like the cinematography becomes very very presentational and abstract. Kate Blanchett turns green and gets this crazy voice, this alternate voice where she's like, she admonishes Sauron in like semi-biblical terms and dispels him from the living world, right? And it's just, and like the eye is there and then it's just, and it's so crazy. Nobody's using Gandalf's real name. Everybody's using all the names from the Silmarillion for everybody, I believe. Like, <laughs> so, so Pete, I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to try to like sort of draw out the parallels between this movie in particular and heavy metal right i mean there's a lot of stuff that you know across the entire peter jackson lord of the rings movies that you can draw parallels to heavy metal too but it sounds like this one in particular as you said it is the most metal of all the lord of the rings i stand by that i don't know if other people feel that way watching it but i stand by it so what are the adjectives that we use to describe both heavy metal and this movie right i would say what enthusiastic um intricate and over the top um, I mean, at least I would I would use those adjectives to describe, say, an Iron Maiden album or perhaps the music of Dragon Force. I would which, say that if we were talking in the parlance of metal, we would not so much say intricate as we would say technical, right? Yeah, like technical, uh, yeah, yeah. technical complexity, right? Yeah. The, the idea that there are many, many notes that you can play at once, yeah. that you can distort things and you can play them and you can do many, many things at the same time. Yeah. But also it's – I would also say disorienting. Yeah, I would also say over the top and unrelenting. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. It sounds like this, it's the way you're describing this, Pete. It sounds like this movie is unrelenting in the way that Through the Fire and Flames, the Dragon Force song, is unrelenting. It is like eight or nine minutes of just like sixteenth notes with like double bass pedal and furious like two hand guitar tapping. Eight or nine minutes is like three hours of double bass pedal and two guitar tapping. I mean, like, yeah, that is that. My my companions and I, after seeing this movie, remarked on its sort of relentless quality, which is a quality I associate with with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? Which for I I don't know, like very metal movie. Yeah, and then the the monkey brains <laughs> tear your heart out for the god Shiva. Kalibar, <laughs> 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 
Kalachi. And he said, prepare to meet Kali in hell. And uh, yeah, and and that it was just a it was just a sort of relentless it was just a sort of relentless assault, um, and not just by the orcs, right? Uh, and so I so the the thing I sort of wonder is what are the what are the rules of storytelling under those conditions? Does that I make sense? Really about it, yeah. What, uh, definitely. The, what are the rules of storytelling? Definitely, definitely. Under um, I mean, right under those under those conditions, in in a in a state of constant chaos and sort of violence, right? It seems like uh, Peter Jackson, who I think you know, uh, despite the the you know, I don't know the the insistence that it that it sort of weaves together that it relies on source material and and in fact weaves together several strands of tolkien uh in into this film and i'm not i'm by no means a tolkien expert i'm not sure anyone uh of us is um right like uh, uh i think he can be considered the author of it and like it and and i'm i'm very i'm very interested in the question of what uh, the dynamics of the dynamics of storytelling under these under these particular conditions under the conditions of like though it's it's much more uh artful like uh like orders of magnitude more artful than your average sort of michael bay movie right like uh under these under these dynamics of chaos and of of um the kind of barrage that i've described before on this podcast the kind of sensory barrage of yeah. modern action modern action cinema though i think there's a lot more to it than that I, I i mean i think that the rhythms are a lot cleaner i think that the camera is used in a much more visually literate way um i think that there is a a, a range of dynamics rather than just just turning everything up to 11 you know uh yeah oh there totally is yeah right um, I mean, though, though even some of the quiet moments aren't really quiet moments. They're sort of metal quiet moments, you yeah. know. <laughs> but, uh, but, but even so, right? I mean, and it seems it seems like uh, the the it it sort of has has its cake and eats it too between like war as massive scale um, technologically powered horror, right? Yeah, and war as. Uh, uh, a contest of individual heroes um, against one another, and a sort of a, uh, a battle of virtue against against virtue to see yeah. which which virtue is the most virtuous, and that in the midst of this like this sort of massive um, you know uh, horrors of war, right? Uh, you know, you would not tell with such high zest that old lie dulce et decorum est. Um, war uh that and and the fact that there are sort of siege engines right like yes and they're giant ogre siege engines but they are like technological um the the idea that this is uh uh so important right like yeah um so yeah so there's a couple of different axes on which all these things meet and yeah. I, I would even give it a little bit more credit even then for its complexity and how it addresses it right so there's the idea of the war right the, the urgency of the war the chaos of the war um very much the, the war between good and evil right um and that is of course something that's difficult to frame in our current understanding of the world because it is hard to really understand relative to us who are the good people who are the evil people the idea of a particular race being evil by its breeding is an idea that we are rightfully a little bit uncomfortable with but at the same time the orcs aren't the orcs are symbolic right and they're symbolic of like a comportment toward 
a particular sort of experience where it's like the people who come and burn down. I think that's why it's so important that it starts with the Smaug scene because it, what it starts with is it starts with you know Bard the Bowman very specifically protecting his children during the chaos of the sack of his city, like the firebombing of Dresden. Right? It's, it's his town is being just annihilated, and he's really desperately trying to save his children. Uh, and so everything that Bard does from that point on is informed by the ordeal that he went through to kill Smaug and save his children and the remnants of his town from the dragon. And so you have this idea of like the battle between good and evil, the battle for survival, the battle of us who we love each other and we're compassionate and we're looking for good solutions to these things versus them who want to kill us for reasons we don't entirely understand, right? Um, this is like a, a, a posture that you could have towards other people. So there's that aspect. And that aspect gets very chaotic and it gets very operatic and intense. Then there's the aspect of the, the politics of dispossession and refugee and exodus and uh, and all that stuff, which is really complex in this movie, right? Where Well, I mean, it's not super complex, but it's like pretty complex, right? So the situation is that you have the dwarves of Erebor, right, who have been exiled from their home by the dragon. Uh, the dragon killed everybody in their home, and then you have this small tribe of guys who live in exile and have been trying to reclaim their home. They finally reclaim their home, right? But what happens is that there's been a recent attack by the dragon on a nearby town. The dragon had previously also stolen some stuff from those people, although only a fraction of the stuff that had been uh, stolen from Erebor, and it's all been lumped together. So those town people, citing an earlier agreement made somewhat under duress are demanding that the, the dwarves give up some of the treasure to them. The dwarven lore king, unwisely perhaps because he's, de- he's demented with dragon sickness because this movie is metal as all hell. He's like, I've got the dragon sickness! And he's like, I'm not going to do it. And then you have the foreign powers that show interest. And the elves show up, right? And what's the first thing the elves do when they show up in the movie, Matt? When they show up in, when they show up in Dale, like where the refugees are from Lake Town, like what is the first thing that the elves do? Uh, they, they, uh, oh God, they I distri- forget. They distribute food aid. Oh, right. right? They, yes, they have, right. The elves come in and it's a giant wagon of food and the people from yep. the, the people from Lake Town climb up and uh, start throwing food off actually like very yeah. generously, right? Like the people of Lake Town, uh, are, are pretty, pretty, uh, uh, idealized, right, in this film, yeah. right? Like, and they're, Except they're for all... the, smart, the, 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 the slimy bureaucrat guy who's a great minor character in this movie, right? Like, the weasel. was his name Arthur? I don't forget what his name is exactly, but he's like the, the bureaucrat who supported Stephen Fry's oppressive previous regime is now, like, manages to work himself high up in the current government and, in, in, like, because there's no one else who can do his job, right? But yeah, other than that, the people of Lake Town are portrayed very flatteringly, right? But then the elves are after a specific necklace that's in the mountain that was stolen off huge long time ago that's not really relevant to anybody here, right? And that Thorin has already said he's going to sell back to them. But the elves are going to take it by force because they can. And they have overwhelming su- support and they also have enough food aid that they can get the local population on their side. And so it's like a really complex political situation. And then you have the orcs who are trying to establish like a, a, a tactical, a strategic situation for a future war that they have planned you know, a hundred years down the line, which is what the Lord of the Rings is about, right? Um, and the, basically they're trying to set up an advanced outpost for Sauron in the old kingdom of Agmar, uh, and the, the Lonely Mountain is important for strategic positioning for the reclaiming of the old kingdom. Of yeah, that is that is right. That is super abstruse. I'm I'm not yeah. sure that I think that the food aid is is all that important, or at least the movie like really says that it's all that important for the the um, the human um, rallying to the elvish 
cause, but like, yeah, I mean, def- definitely. Like, I think it's just sort of an example of like this is the kind of thing that happens in these kinds of situations. Yeah, sure. And, and also, it sort of predisposes Bard the Bowman to be sympathetic to. Um, oh gosh, I keep forgetting the name of that Elven King. Yeah, I don't. I, that's why I, I didn't that. remember his name either. Yeah. He's not a particularly notable elf. I mean, I don't think his story is all that compelling. The movies, I think, make him a better a better character than he is in the books because there's not there's no scene in the books where he picks up six orcs with the antlers of his reindeer <laughs> right. and then chops all their heads off with one sweep of his sword. <laughs> Mark, this movie was badass. Um, but but and here's the other thing, and this is the thing I think that really gets to the heart of the movie. And it talks it's about heavy metal too because I've been trying to get wrap my head around 70s and 80s heavy metal over the course of the last couple of weeks, particularly Ronnie James Dio. I've been talking to my friends about it on Facebook, just trying to figure out what what's going on, right? Because it's like not that loud. Is it just that it's loud and noisy? Like not really. Like certain kinds of acid rock are noisier than the heavy metal that come after it, right? And what does it deal with the occult and with like? So, so the, the, the closest I've been able to come is to think that, like, it comes out of psychedelia, right? So the idea that, you know, you have these psychedelic artistic experiences where you're trying to liberate yourself com- from conventional thinking using drugs. And in this altered state, you have, like, visions of different ways that the world could be, right? And that this becomes associated with rock music. Um, and, but then that opens the doorway to the association, right, between, like, rock music and kind of visions and dissociation, right? And it's like, well, drugs aren't the only thing that over time has, has created a literary history of vision and dissociation. Like, a big one are, like, you know, stories of, like, prophets and magic and, like, uh, and, like the, the sort of early fictional, early fictional accounts of, like, the dawn of man and, like, and also just, like, story, encountering of vast natural phenomena that you can't comprehend and like communicating with urgency and frenzy you know like what it's about which is kind of like part of anglo-saxon literature which informs tolkien right and it, it just seems like a lot of the pulling of the occult and the magic is similarly saying like there is a world around me that is bigger and crazier than a i understand or am comfortable with in my regular life or b that like the structures of regular life these sort of discourses of regular life like empower me to talk about like i can't use the language of regular life to describe my experience because my experience is just as a human being is much crazier than the terms that regular life gives me so i'm gonna pull from the terms of like sword and sorcery because the way that those characters interact with their environment it makes me feel like how i'm interacting with my my world. So and I think this is a problem with pre-George R. R. Martin, pre-Game uh, of Thrones fantasy in general, is that there are these orcs, and they're huge, and they're monstrous. They do bear, very well, by the way, undercut the scariness of the uruk in the earlier movies, because these orcs are hypothetically less powerful than the uruk yet are much bigger and scarier than them. Uh, yeah, I but, thought uh, I heard the word uruk in some uh, in some other, in some non-human language in this, but it can't, it can't be, right? Because you really don't no. get uruk 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 uh will find you. Um, you don't get uh, the uruk until Saruman starts breathing them right yes exactly okay and the idea the orc are better able to function during the day and they're also bigger and stronger but these orcs are much bigger and stronger than the, the orc but the idea that even the most minor major character can kill like 20 of them at a go right and this is like somewhat implausible if you see the events in the movie as being representative of events that happen in real life right um it's like well is this supposed to be realistic and it's like well, well, yeah why would you why would you send these crappy soldiers against you know our ragtag band of heroes <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, why not just, like, go around them or something? Because clearly <laughs> these 12 guys can't do that much. Starve them out, right? But that's not what this is about. And, and the word that I would use to connect both the heavy metal and this Hobbit movie, right, and, like, this kind of fantasy uh, stuff in general that I would add to Mark's list from earlier is I would say that they are expressionistic. Right, like, 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 sort of German expressionism, right? Like these paint, like figures represented at, with their, their sort of their vital energy, the energy uh, and alienation of their circumstances, the sort of individual in a, in a mad and absurd world, right? Like this, and also the individual kind of like writ large and expanded and and, 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 and enshrined, not enshrined, but like um, uh, apotheosized. Right into like uh, something greater than than a uh, a person upon perceiving, right? Like just flashes of color and and just the extremity of the experience of the figure in expressionism is something that I think is characteristic of high fantasy characters, right? The flowing beards and the braided hair and the giant swords and a dozen bleeding corpses around them, right? Like standing on the mountaintop with the, with the Ar- holy Arkenstone, right? Like the Stone of Kings, right? These are all things that are happening on a grander scale than an individual might experience, but they all speak to an individual sort of experience when you kind of, almost like, you know, this sort of sing the body electric kind of thing where it's like, I experience myself, right? I experience myself in all this wonder and I can't handle the experience of myself. I can't even put it into words. It's so great, right? And then the world outside me is like so crazy and, and, and scary, but also also like vastly complex and predatory right and beautiful and terrible right like like we we try to talk about ourselves and we try to talk about the world um and it, it seems like our representations the projections that we make into them that are kind of quote-unquote realistic they often fall short of capturing the emotional subjective reality of what it feels like right and like this is why kind of teenage boys might gravitate particularly towards heavy metal because they have these feelings that the world around them i mean teenage girls have it too everybody has them but it's like this particular targeted genre is like we are looking at these sorts of feelings that you have in this part of time in your life where you don't understand your feelings right uh, and and we are we are giving we are giving symbolism to them we are giving a vocabulary to talk about them right um and, yeah, I, mean, and I think also i mean i think you say boys because it connects so strongly with with aggression right yeah and like yeah. and it gives i i won't say in nobles but it gives it sort of gives voice to aggression in a way that that you know, I don't know. It makes it possible almost to sort of withstand or process, right, uh, the aggression in a way that could be kind of generative and meaningful rather than just being um, – rather than just being destructive or just being sort of pathologized or mythologized as destructive, right? Like, oh, yeah, totally. It's like well, – yeah. Because the, because the fighting leads to the freedom of the people. <laughs> and also because I think that also there's a lot of indictment of the self and of the other in heavy metal. It's not just glorification. And it's not just glorification in this movie either, right? It's like, you know, like Run to the Hills by Iron Maiden is a great example. You know, it's a song about the slaughter of Native Americans. It's not particularly flattering. It's not like – it's not something that takes like a very morally easily defensible stand. But it's not about that. It's about like the feeling of horror uh, on all sides, Right and about the sort of extremity of the situation, right? And it's it is about the the it's an operatic extreme investigation of the feelings of the people on all sides of this. There's the savagery of the awful people, you know, who are going to kill the Native Americans, and the sort of courage and resistance of the Native Americans, but also the fury of the of the cavalrymen. Right? It all mixes together, and it's not all good. Like no one can ever really accuse heavy metal of liking itself too much. Hmm. 
I think, because it's very cruel to itself. You know, like, you know, I'm terrible, I'm dying, you know, I'm a puddle of crap. You know, these things are all very common in the genre. Um, and I would also say that one of the things that sort of Tolkien lore, and, and up until this point in the series, I feel like that the Tolkien movies have only, they have connected more than other interpretations have, but they've only really partially connected to the aspects of Tolkien that really energize Tolkien fans, and they get really, Tolkien fans, like, really excited. Um, I would give. I would give. If you're doing like a sort of gender inventory, I gotta give credit to the Lady Galadriel, both in this movie and in general as an influential character. Because I have known a lot of women over the years who have been felt, I think, very empowered by the Tolkien vision of the like powerful elf queen as like a figure, right? Not just as a strong female character, right? But as like a character who has complexity and depth and wants and needs, right? But it, and it, and is beautiful and terrible and powerful, you know, and and has vul- and has vulnerability and loneliness all at the same time. I think Galadriel is a great character. I think she's a great character in this movie. Um, certainly better than Toriel, which is the one that they made up for this movie, which is fine. She's fine. She has to fight and 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 so they like they're like they check all the boxes, but Galadriel is the really compelling character here. Um, and in that way, you know, like the metal fans and the Tolkien fans, they kind of have a lot in common. They all dress in the crazy outfits. There's something very transformative about it. There's the long hair, which signifies kind of like sexual release and empowerment, right? Um, and, and also kind of like feeling like an outcast, like an exile, like everybody in the story. Like everybody in, in, in these stories is an exile from somewhere. Right, like there's no real home except for the Shire and the whole freaking story, right? Like, I mean, maybe Rivendell, like maybe, but it's very characteristic of the homes of the elves in the Third Age, uh, particularly the Fourth Age, but the Third Age also that they are places that are not really meant to be there, and that they are places where you really can't stay, and places that are going to go away at some point, right? right? Because like, the yeah. the the whole emphasis on the sort of destruction and theft, right, of the things that were important for for every yes. character's homes, and the sort of vulnerable. Vulnerability, uh, the vulnerability of the idea of of home, right? Like, if you have something that's important, that means that there's a dragon that can that can really ruin your day, uh, because the yeah. dragon can sort of take away the thing that's important, or ruin it, or you know what I mean, make it uninhabitable, or you know, take away the things that had been like precious and uh, valuable to you. Um, yeah, yeah, and and this also, I mean, I felt like the Lord of the Rings, just in terms of like. I don't know, right? The the if if there is a project in in Tolkien of sort of um, lionizing lionizing sort of British values, right? Uh, over and above um, I, more continental European values, right? Like values of values of sort of normalcy and reliability over and above uh, you know the sort of romantic excesses that one associates with. Uh, Southern Europe? Yeah, I mean, continental, or that maybe that British culture associates with, like, you know, Southern Europe or continent, you know, continental culture a little bit more. Um, This this movie, or the Hobbit series in general, actually, was less successful than the Lord of the Rings uh, at that, right? Like, the the idea of, like, Frodo's return home at at the end of three movies, and I'm talking about the film adaptations now, right? Like, the idea of of Elijah Wood's return home was... Was, was this really powerful release. Like, even though he couldn't stay there, there was this really powerful sense of, of, uh, of arrival and belonging and of having endured an ordeal uh, and going, right? And that, that final scene, like, you know, good though it was, sort of touching in a low-key way though it was between Martin Freeman and, and the Dwarf Company, um, 
you know, the company of Thorne Oakenshield, right? Like the, that final scene, it was like, well, you know, Hey, I'm, I will meet again. Don't know how, (laughs) don't know when. Uh, and it was, you know, like it did, it didn't have that sense of like, wow, man, man, have I suffered, you know, and I'm ready to, uh, you know, I'm ready to pack it in because I have suffered and like, I will never, you know, um, uh, I'll, I'll never, you know, uh, uh, disparage the humble pleasures of home again. I'll never, you know, wish to go out on the, go out on the road again, because like now I know, now I know the value of these things. No. Uh, and, and, and home is awesome. You know, like, uh, uh, normalcy is awesome, right? Like sitting by the, sitting by the fire is awesome. And like, Sam, we're, we're taking you back to your bosomy hobbitess, right? And you're, you're going to, uh, you know, you you are going to live a normal life and understand the value of that, even though Frodo has to go off with the elves, right? Like, because he's borne the weight of the ring uh, and whatnot. Um, in, in this movie, right, like, adventure is awesome. You know, mm-hmm. sort of being pushed to the limit is awesome, right? Like, standing on the standing on the, the mirror, mirrored gold disco floor and seeing the shadow of the dragon, which is like the shadow of the darkness in your soul floating beneath it, right? That is awesome, you know? Uh... That like uh, you know di- dying and and being killed by and killing the orc you know is awesome. Yeah, uh, that's uh, right. Like that, and and so it doesn't you know it doesn't sort of manage to uh, it doesn't manage to sort of make the case for the you know for the the kind of staid but but reliable uh, British character you know, in the same way that, that, um, the other movies managed to, if that is in fact, uh, uh, and you know, better experts than, than me, uh, will have to tell me whether that is in fact a, a, one of the social projects of the, of the J.R.R. Tolkien novels. I would, I would describe this movie as Tolkien's Scarface, uh, <laughs> in that like Tolkien set out at least to write the Hobbit. It seems to present the Hobbit as like the way that you should live your life, and as everybody else as like pathologically dangerous, right? Where it's like the elves are insane with Matt because they are obsessed with these old gems that they lost hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, right? Like the elves don't care about anyone who's alive. The men don't care about anything that's happening. The dwarves don't care about anything at all, right? Everyone's going to go to war for no reason at the end of this book, and the Hobbit is the only one who has his head on straight, right? And what this movie is like saying is basically, you know, sort of like, oh. Uh, kill an orc for free right? like you know it's it's like it's, it's you know the world is when thorin oakenshield is sitting in in erebor in the lonely mountain and says the world is mine right that's supposed uh, to be a cautionary yeah. tale that's supposed to be something you shouldn't want to do right but at the same time thorin is like the heavily a heavily romanticized character who is badass and awesome and i would say this movie is his story or at least the ending of the movie is his ending as much as anyone right i mean I know the scene going back to Bag End wasn't much, but that scene where Thorin was dying and and the eagles were there. I mean, think of that as an echo to the ending of the first Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like, oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. Even thinking about it, I mean, Mark, they you know because people complained 
right? And rightfully so, I think, that when Gwahir, the Windlord, shows up at Mount Doom and saves Frodo and Sam, that it's kind of a cop-out, and they should probably die. At least Frodo should probably die at this point in the story. Yeah, it's a bit of a David Sex Machina, right? The rec- rescue yeah. is not entirely earned. Yeah. And so this movie ends, I mean, it really ends with this auction, but that's kind of, it's kind of fun and silly, and it does its purpose. But it really, it ends with, uh, and it ends actually by going back to the beginning of the first trilogy in a fun way, but it ends with, like, the eagles show up, and they start fighting the orcs and they turn the tide of battle and bilbo is like cradling the head of the like orc stabbed and orc stabbing like mutual death to my sworn enemy thorn oakenshield who is like reconciling with bilbo on his deathbed right trying to apologize for his greed and bilbo was like you're gonna make it you're gonna make it see the eagles are coming the eagles are coming mm. right it's mm. the same refrain that's said in the in the lord of the rings that it ends the chapter right isn't it the eagles are coming the eagles are coming and it's like yeah they're coming but they're not coming for me because i'm thorn oakenshield the king under the mountain you know like <laughs> the eagles don't fly under the mountain. <laughs> the eagles are of the air, and we are of the stone. <laughs> we drop into the darkness. <laughs> the sons of Durin are among you. <laughs> uh, can, can I ask a question to wrap up the yeah, conversation? Yeah, yeah. It sounds like we're approaching the end of this. I mean, so um, the Fellowship of the Rings that movie came out in two thousand one. Yes, right. And so now we have had a decade and a half of film adaptations of J.R.R. Tolkien's books, right? And, like, how do we we take stock of the entire artistic artistic endeavor, right? I mean, sort of the the narrative that uh, is is starting to come out is that the first trilogy was this artistic masterpiece, and the second one is this sort of more cynical cash grab uh, and inferior artistic product. I I think the, the end... Verdict will be more complicated than that, and we should never, you know, we shouldn't reduce it to quite so simple of terms. Um, but I would be curious to hear you guys weigh in on what you think of the uh, of both of the trilogies, uh, sort of considered as a uh, as an entire unit. It is freaking remarkable that they made so many movies that are so good about this one series. Yeah. It is. It is. Free. I mean, yes. You can say what you want about the Hobbit movies not really being on the same level as the Lord of the Rings movies in terms of just. I mean, the first Hobbit movie is for kids, and that that was kind of the original concept. At least, at least when I saw it, that I thought it was is that like this is the Lord of the Rings series that you make for the children of the people who like the first Lord of the Rings series because now and we talked about this when the Hobbit came out, right? It's like now those people are old enough that they're having children, so now you can you can have their kids watch it, and so it's going to be sillier, and it's going to have music, and it's going to have scones that are as big as your head, right? And it's going to be fun, and it, and it's going to have a Goblin King and a and a crazy chase and 3D action, right? And uh, barrel chases and whatnot. So like. But they're all really good at what they're doing, I think. I think even that first Hobbit movie, which was, I think, the biggest misstep, um, because it's just so much of it is dedicated to cheesy special effects. But, I mean, they're all so good. And I do think at the end of the day, the difference between the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies is similar to the difference between the Hobbit book and the Lord of the Rings books, which is that the Lord of the Rings books are, you know, a, a story that emerges from a world, right? You create a world, and then you tell the story of that world, right? And then and the story is rich, and it's detailed and complex, and it's balanced, and it's explorative, and it does all this cool stuff. Whereas the Hobbit movies are a, a story, are story first, and the world's the background, 
right? And, and it's like, okay, we're going to tell a fun story about this guy going on an adventure, and all the other stuff that happens is going to exist in support of it, which is true for the first two, two, and then the third one just goes crazy. I think that the third movie, it's, it's going to be really hard to nail down what the role of the third movie is, especially in the trilogy, right? The trilogy of The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, and then uh, Steel Hobbit Legolas's Revenge, or whatever you want to call this thing. Um, it's just, it's hard to place. Uh, where exactly it lies in it, but yeah, I mean, like it's they're not as good as movies. This, I mean, Matt, is that like a controversial thing to say? No, that, like, that, uh, that, yeah. that no, they're not. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I, uh, I don't know. I think it is. I think what Pete says is right. That that it's it's remarkable that they're as good as they are, and maybe we should leave well enough alone, right? Like yeah. <laughs> for, for our, you know, for our criticism. Maybe maybe you guys are just overthinking this whole thing. Oh. Oh, uh, sick burn. But no, I mean, that is to say in terms of in terms of criticizing them, whether they're I mean, whether they're a cash grab, right? Like because I've seen some cash grabs. Right. And this is a lot better than um, than a a cynical cash grab has any right to be. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. The, The other thing I'll say for this movie is how little concession it makes to people who haven't who haven't oh, yeah. seen the the earlier ones. And the the same thing actually the same thing is true. And I you know, I don't know. I think this is really to Peter Jackson's credit, right, as a filmmaker. Um the same thing is true of the the Lord of the Rings movies. You're just thrust right back into the middle of the story. Um uh you know, this the uh the um you know, you're the man now, Schmog, uh, takes place like immediately following the, the last shot of the second, of the second Hobbit movie. And it's very, it's very, um, you know, uh, it does make a lot of, it does make a lot of sense if you haven't, uh, if you haven't seen it. I mean, almost, you almost though could like everything up to the main title of this movie almost could have been appended to the end of the second movie and given it much more sense of closure <laughs> and of like, of finality, you know? Um, yeah. In that sense, it is. I mean, it is a little cheap because it's a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like Mr. Worf fire. Uh, you know, it's a little, it's a little bit best of both worldsy, but the, right. And, 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 you know, and then the, the spoiler alert for uh, Star Trek, the next generation, right? Like the, the beam that they've rigged from the deflector dish doesn't do anything, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, you know, the dragon is defeated. Yeah. Yeah. Lake town is a, is a burning shambles, but it really doesn't bear on, uh, where this film's heart is, you know, no. e- even, even a little bit, the dragon is sort of, the dragon is sort of incidental, the dragon. Incidental. Um, the dragon's corpse turns black as it plunges from the sky, and the dragons <laughs> leave the earth, and the countries of the world gather to dissect its corpse and steal its gold. Gold. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, something. There's something to be said for how little, how little the the film is concerned with you following the. Yeah. You following they, this sort of myth? I think the, they call him Mithrandir in this movie before they call him Gandalf. I think, like, they might call him Gandalf like once, maybe, but they call him. There's a lot of characters using the elven names for each other. Yeah, and it's just yeah, it's like they're not explaining what it means. You know, like if you don't know that his name isn't Mithrandir, you're going to be pretty confused, yeah. or maybe not. You know, like no, whatever. no, no, and I, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's plenty of, you know, I don't know. There's plenty of kind of kinetic. 
uh, excitement, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's really, yeah. that's really what, that's really what it is. And then, and then like every now and again, there's a boss fight, you know? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and the boss fight is an opportunity to say something about character, right? Like the, the boss fight is an opportunity to, to sort of show the moral progress, uh, of the characters throughout the, uh, uh, throughout, you know, throughout the story, right? But it's, th- and this is what I meant by like under these circumstances, under like, circumstances of extreme metalitude right like what what constitutes storytelling um in this universe and it's like you know I don't, you're you're metal but you're metal in a different way you know you're metal but you're <laughs> uh you're metal but you're you're a little more sorrowful about your your uh, about how metal you are because you realize the cost you realize that gold is just another metal <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to leave it there for today. This was a lot of fun to have this conversation. Skype problems notwithstanding, it still was a pleasure to talk uh, about uh, The Hobbit, uh, Legolas Revenge, uh, Metal <laughs> metal Bowman, Metal Arrow, Metal Heart of the Dragon. Uh, so uh, if you have anything you want to say about The Hobbit, or if you, you know, I'd actually really, I would really appreciate perspectives from... Um, Perspectives from the point of view of uh, anyone, um, anyone who knows about uh, anyone who knows about the kind of the larger uh, uh, Tolkien mythos, I, you know, and what you think of this film and what the what that community, what that fandom has has to say about this. Because I'm not really a, a member of that fandom, and so I'm 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 curious. So if you have that expertise, uh, why don't you sound off in the comments uh, on the show notes for this episode, or email us at podcast at overthinking it com um or uh email us at, at or call call or text 203-285-6401 that's 203-285-6401 call or text we actually got a really nice voicemail uh that really warmed warmed our hearts um recently so uh we're grateful for that one uh and grateful for all the voicemails that come in uh all right well uh this is uh this is the week in which Christmas is coming. You know, check overthinking it on Christmas. That's all I'm going to say. And uh, we'll be back with more Overthinking It podcasts next week. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve.